Let's pray before we begin. God, we need you to be our sure and steady anchor. There are too many things blowing us every direction, shaking us, causing us to be distracted. We need to see Christ today. God, use your words now to awaken our affections for you. Not that we would have some good information to take home with us, but that we would have hearts that are more satisfied, more steadfast in Christ than ever before. Amen. I'm really excited this morning to announce a new ministry initiative that we are hoping to unroll over the next few months with as much aggression as Minnesotans can possibly muster. I uh, haven't really spoken with Jake about this yet, so he might be a little surprised at my proposal, but I'm sure he'll agree with me because we agree on so many things already. This plan, I think, nearly guarantees that none of you will ever sin again. I think it's really, most importantly, going to honor Jesus as we present ourselves to him as a spotless, undefiled bride. I know you're really interested in what this great plan is. You're really excited. And I'll just summarize it with one word. Avoidance. It's the avoidance plan. Yes, it's everything you're thinking of right now when you hear that word in the context of church. Avoid anything that is unholy or could possibly ever be used in any unholy purpose. So let me give you a few examples. Dancing. Avoid it. Someone might see it and get turned on and seek illicit pleasure. Movies? Avoid them. You might accidentally see something unholy and become unholy yourself. How about public school? Avoid it. Someone might teach your kids something grotesque that they'll never unlearn. The best policy, I think, is that you just avoid people who aren't Christians. Stay home all the time. If you need groceries, there's this new invention that I think Christians invented just for this purpose. They can deliver them right to your front door. You never need to leave except when you need to come here. You should be here. But you'll be with Christians, so it's safe. Got it? No. I'm glad you understand. This is clearly a caricature. It is exactly opposite of God's plan of salvation in Christ, what he calls us to. But this strategy, unfortunately, isn't far off from what many churches employ. I know that many of you have experienced this in church before, and it's left you feeling unnecessary pain and guilt and shame. You, everywhere you walk around, you feel like you have to walk on eggshells, like you're going to break some law and God's going to strike you dead right there. Or you walk into the gathering of God's people, constantly looking over your shoulder because you fear that everyone's talking about you. Oh, you're the dancer. I know what you're going to be up to. Oh, you're the guy that's been addicted to drugs before. I'm, I know what you're going to be doing later, right? But lest you think this is just a church problem, it's actually a very human-wide problem. We all sense this feeling that we're somehow unclean, that we have these consciences nagging us that something's not right, and so we do everything we can to clean up our image before others. And the world is really quick to offer suggestions on how we ought to look. So spend any time on the Internet or in media, you'll find exactly what weight you should be, what your hair should look like, 
how perfectly obedient your kids should be, what your home should be decorated like, how you should be making uh, some really fantastic, cute Halloween costumes from scratch, making your own fabric in your own yard. You have... It's really easy, they say, to make your own butter and bone broth from the cows you're raising in the backyard. And now, of course, it's election season, so politicians left and right are telling you how you ought to love your neighbor by electing me to take your money and love your neighbor for you. We are the society of law and guilt. We pass laws. We have all kinds of unwritten rules. We have expectations for each other. And if anyone crosses the line, we are quick to bring judgment, heap shame and guilt upon one another. All of us are both victims and perpetrators of this culture. But again, it's not just the church. It's not just modern America that has this problem. Today we're going to look in Matthew chapter 15 and see how the first century Jews experienced this problem as well and how Jesus provides a way out for his disciples and for all of us. So, turn to Matthew chapter 15. We'll look at the first 20 verses. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break the tradition or break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is already given to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. We Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, uh, Explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that what goes into a man passes through the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think we've all seen from our lives in now this text 
that we have a bit of a problem of holding people to inappropriate expectations. And then we make them feel quite unholy when they don't live up to them. And then, in order to pay penance to get back into right standing, we heap upon them more and more rules in order to get clean, we tell them. And so, the main point I want you to take home today is that nothing, nothing can make you or keep you clean but Christ. Nothing can make or keep you clean except for Jesus Christ. And we'll take a look at that point in three parts through this text. First, in verses 1 through 11, we're going to look at the evidence of this problem in the first century. How this problem manifests itself in defiled judgment, improper use of the law. Second, in verses 12 to 14, we'll see that this problem isn't just out there, a society problem, but it goes right to the top, to the very leaders as defiled judges. And then in verses 15 to 20, get to the heart of the problem. The corruption goes right down inside every single one of us in our defiled hearts that only Christ can make clean. So let's go back to the text. I'll just read the first six verses or so again in order to save a little time with this huge text. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered them, Why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother... What you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And we've seen that the Pharisees have a little bit of a problem with all the authority that Jesus is claiming for himself. The whole book of Matthew so far has just been display after display of Jesus having authority over creation, over sickness, over demons, over death, and even over the law. And there's been a few skirmishes with the Pharisees who are trying to set him straight, but they haven't found any lasting success yet. And so they decide, we're going to bring in the big guns. These are the Galilean Pharisees that haven't been able to find any success. We're bringing in the guys from the capital city in Jerusalem. They'll know what to do. These are the experts of the experts. And so they arrive to come and put an end to this foolish Messiah wannabe. And they choose to battle over the law, the law of Moses. They're laughing amongst themselves, going, how can you believe it? This guy thinks that he is the Messiah, king of all Israel, and yet his disciples don't even wash their hands when they eat. (laughs) That seems rather strange to us, like that's a good point. Where do they get this idea? Do they really think that hand washing makes you more holy before God? Some of you might actually agree. I did wash my hands a few times this morning. It's not completely unfounded. In Exodus chapter 30, they have come out of Egypt and they're in this new nation and God is giving them direction how to worship in the tabernacle. And when the priest enters the tabernacle, one of the very first things he needs to do is wash his hands in this big bronze 
basin full of water, wash his hands, wash his feet, symbolically proclaiming, I need to be made clean in order to enter the presence of God. So it was a a rule for the priests. How did it become a, a law for all of the people of Israel? Well, remember that Israel was exiled, kicked out of their city, their own city destroyed, and they were carried off to a far off land to live in Babylon. But God said, the reason that happened is because you are so unrighteous. I gave you my law and you didn't even care about me. So I had you exiled, but you're going to come back. I'm going to bring you back to give you another shot. And so 70 years later, they make it. They're back rejoicing. We never want to do that again. Don't let that happen again. Anybody, do not break God's law. To make sure this doesn't happen, we're also going to expand the law to everybody and we're going to put a few extra laws all around there to keep you from getting any close to breaking any laws. They had good intentions, but they completely missed the point of the law. The law was never given to give them processes to keep themselves holy, to make themselves clean. The law was given to show them, you are defiled. To reveal that they needed God to provide merciful, heavenly cleansing. They didn't see that the law was to point out their inability to love others. And instead, they take the law and they use it to make much of themselves. Jesus' disciples weren't breaking any law by not washing their hands. Maybe it would have been good hygiene, but they weren't breaking the law. And even in the spirit of the law, they were doing exactly what it was meant to do. Saying, I'm unclean. I'm coming to the Messiah to make me clean. They were right there with him, doing exactly what the law intended, pointing them to Christ. And so Jesus, in verse 3, decides to turn the law back upon the Pharisees. He's going to use it for what it was designed to do. Expose defiled judgment. This hand-washing law was relatively vague and minor compared to the fifth commandment, which Jesus then quotes in verse 4. Honor your father and mother. God wrote that with his own finger on tablets of stone. It's clear. Honor your father and mother. And the punishment, Exodus 21.17, if you fail to do that, execution. That is severe. I don't have time to go into why such a severe judgment. We can talk over lunch afterwards about it. But it should speak to the great importance of this law. You ought to keep this one. But the religious rulers found a way around it to make themselves look holy without having to keep it. There was this free will offering that the law prescribed that you could say, if if you were just so in love with God, so thankful for his provision, you could offer money to him and say, use this in the temple so more people can come to know our amazing God. Or my land, I'm devoting my whole land so that all the food goes right to the temple so people can worship our amazing God. But then later some Jewish rabbi came along in very Pharisaic fashion and added a bunch of rules to this free will, abundance of the heart offering and explained, well, if you do that, then you don't ever get to have any of that back. It can't ever be taken back and used for any other purposes. So if you were to say, I'm dedicating my land today for for the temple, as 
just for this year, he would say, no, no, that's permanent. It's all theirs. And so the religious rulers were using these extra laws to say to their parents, sorry, I know you call me to take care of you in your old age. The word honor can mean give money to somebody. They're old in age. They need someone to take care of them. And they go, oh, the money I have, I dedicated it to God. And honoring God is more important relatively than honoring parents. So, sorry. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? You are hypocrites. You're using the law for your own benefit. The law was meant to show you how to love others as God does. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. He quotes Isaiah to say, you guys think you're so much more holy than those people hundreds of years ago who were exiled for their unrighteousness. But he wasn't just talking to them. He's talking to you. You are wicked. You make it look like you love God's law, His righteousness, but you don't care about Him at all. And so, Jesus says His peace with them, and He turns to the crowds, says, I'm done with you. I'm not talking to you guys anymore. We've seen Jesus do that a lot. He just says His words and moves on to people who will respond. And He turns to the crowd in verse 11 and says, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. He's saying something quite radical. Following the law will not make you clean. Breaking the law does not make you defiled. The law simply reveals what is already defiled inside. And in this case, the judges are revealing that they are just as guilty as anybody else. So what's Jesus going to do about these guys? The leaders of Israel are defiled. We should get rid of them. They're hurting people. And see, Jesus, what happens in verse 12? What is Jesus going to do with these defiled judges? The disciples came to him and said, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into a pit. So the disciples are asking Jesus, I don't think you got rid of them so quickly. What are you going to do about these Pharisees? You just offended them. They're going to go get more of their buddies and come back with a vengeance. They're going to hurt more people. Aren't you going to do anything about it, Jesus? And he responds with these statements about plants and blind guides to assure them they will get justice. They will get what's coming to them. You'll be fine. And he reminds them of the parable of the weeds and the wheat from chapter 13 that we preached on a month or two ago, seems like. God is going to send his angels one day to take out the weeds and burn them in the fire. But let them grow now together. They'll be, the wheat will be fine. God's people will be cared for. He will protect them. How can you say that? They won't hurt people. These are the smartest people, the most influential. They have money. They've got power. Jesus says they are blind guides. They're too blind to have any impact. If you are in the truth, if you are with the Messiah, then you can see these blind guides coming a mile away, patting each other on the back for how holy and clever and smart they are. Just step out of the way when they approach and let them pat each other right into the pit of hell. 
these judges will be judged. Their defiled hearts will be exposed. And because they have such a high position of authority and power, they'll be held to a stricter judgment, which should make anyone who stands up here even tremble. If you want to teach these people to lead them in new understandings of the law, James says you will be held to a higher judgment. We ought to tremble at the thought of possibly being a blind guide, leading others away from the holiness of Christ, leading others away from Him with wrong interpretations of the law that heap more guilt, more burdens upon people. We all ought to tremble because it's not just the Pharisees and leaders who are defiled judges. Every single one of us is. So let's go back to the text and see this reality in verse 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? You're blind too. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So Peter's going to be the assertive disciple that he is and be the first to put his foot in his mouth trying to seek understanding about this teaching about what goes in and out of the mouth. I don't understand. What's going on? And Jesus is just incredulous. Are you kidding me? You still don't understand? You've been with me all this time. You've seen me touch dead people, touch lepers, touch sick people. You've heard me teach on the law. And you still don't understand what this is all about? At least the Pharisees understood at some level. They knew what he was talking about. That's why they were offended. He is overthrowing everything they know about the law. But the disciples are just like deer in the headlights. What's happening? But it's actually a somewhat legitimate question if you are immersed in the Jewish mindset. God had given Israel a ton of laws to show their unrighteousness. Over 600 laws. And among these laws were laws of clean and unclean, purity. And you had to be ritually clean, pure, to enter into God's presence, to go into the temple and worship and share a meal with Him there. And here, in these laws, they explain what types of things make you unclean and how, what the process is to become clean again, to enter the temple. And so a few examples are touching dead things makes you unclean, whether it's a dead animal on the side of the road or a beloved family member that just died in your arms. Or eating certain foods, bacon, pork chops, shrimp, scampi, lobster bisque makes you unclean. Many things that are very good could make you unclean. Having a baby. Making a baby or caring for your sick, sniffly child. All of these things could make you unclean, but it had nothing to do with them being actual sinful practices. It was just this ordinary life way of saying, uncleanness, sin has spread everywhere. Everywhere I go, there's uncleanness. And it's supposed to remind you 
I need something greater than hand washing to get rid of all of this impurity. I need God to provide something greater that lasts forever. And so to enter the temple, every time you wanted to go, you had to wash and sacrifice, wash and sacrifice. But it was to point you to a time when finally God would wash everything with his sacrifice and everything would be clean again. So Peter's inquiry is actually a really good question that addresses how all of us think about how clean we are and how we clean up our image. We have it all backwards. He says food doesn't make you unclean. Food has literally zero effect on your purity before God. It goes into your mouth, gets churned up in your stomach, and the ESV leaves out a word, and it gets expelled into the toilet. It seems disgusting, but that's how God designed it. God's not disgusted by your digestive processes. He knows about it. And he's not disgusted by the food that goes into your mouth. It's not like he was in the garden one day admiring how beautiful it was and then a pig went running by and he, whoa, whoa, who put that in here? That is disgusting. We can never have pigs in my presence. No, everything he made was very good. We defiled it with our sin but in Christ, it is all very good again. So this isn't really about food. It's about your behaviors. And he's making a a very radical statement that applies to all of us. It's not your behaviors that make you sinners. It's not what you eat, with whom you hang out with, how you educate your kids, what movies you watch, which drugs you've done, which people you've slept with. Those things don't make you a sinner. Instead, he says, you do those things. You make the choices in your life because you're a sinner. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. What you do doesn't make you unclean. The point of the law was to show you you are already deeply defiled and you need God, the only one who can wash you. To the Jews, he's saying, you can't make yourself clean by washing your hands, eating kosher, celebrating festivals. And to us, he's saying, you can't make yourself clean by eating organic, homeschooling, having craft time at the dinner table, getting sober on your own for three months, not ever being alone with someone of the opposite sex. As good as some of these things might be, you're already defiled. And there's only one solution. Friends, don't hear me saying today that you can go out and do whatever you want now because it doesn't actually defile me. I can do whatever I want because it doesn't make me a sinner. No, even the thought that you might have like that proves that you're already defiled, that you're trying to find a way around the law like the Pharisees. What I'm saying is that you do those things and then try to clean up the mess because you know deep down inside something's wrong and there's only one solution. Turn to Christ. Plead with Jesus. Cast it all before the mercy of the Savior. This isn't just for those of you in the room who aren't Christians yet. The Gospel is for all of us. In some way, every one of you in this room is trying to prove your worth and your value to others and to God. 
We try to wash our hands so we can draw near Him. Stop it. Draw near to Him first and He will do the cleansing by His Spirit in you. Jesus came as the only person with a pure heart whose heart was so pure His blood can cleanse all of you. He hung on the cross saying, give me your defilements, all of it. I want it all so you can be clean. And He rose from the grave, defeating it all, wiping it all away, saying, here, have my spotless, undefiled record. In Him we are clean, not in any law. Lay your burden of guilt and shame before Him. The law was meant to point you to freedom in Him. Experience that love and freedom He offers you. God, don't let us be a people who boasts in our own righteousness, our own ability to keep the law, but a church who boasts in Christ. Let's consider the ways in which we add unnecessary guilt to this world by heaping expectations upon people. We do this all the time. We do need laws, yes, but the laws should help us love others. What unwritten rules do we have that we expect? Maybe it's how clean our house is and someone comes in and they expect, well, they have to have a clean house just like ours. Or how we dress expects makes people expect that that's what purity before God looks like. Or maybe it's something written like the law of our land. We are people who are about the, the rule of law. We are a law-abiding people. And sometimes our laws help keep us from loving people. And then we conveniently use them as an excuse to hold those people at a distance so we can feel clean and stay away from those dirty people. If our family house rules or our government's laws aren't helping us love people, maybe we ought to set them aside. That might be offensive to some of you, thinking, what? We can't set aside the law. We need law to keep us in order, to keep us clean. Yes, that's our impulse, but it is not the gospel. In this world, Jesus says, you're going to suffer. You're going to get dirty. Because that's what he did. How scandalous is it that Jesus, the King of heaven, clothed in glory, set it aside, emptied himself, put on frail humanity, took our filth upon Himself. He touched lepers and He didn't get unclean. He touched sick people, held them in their arms. He picked up a dead little girl and He did not get unclean. He could do that because those laws weren't about making you unclean, but showing you how defiled you are. And He wasn't. He didn't break any laws. He loved God and He loved people, which is the whole point of the law. If one of God's laws keeps you from loving your neighbor, I think you're misunderstanding the law. Jesus didn't misunderstand it. He embodied it. He was the law. He is the law. Everything about the law describes His holy character, who He is, pointed to His perfect love. The law is a contextualized expression of God's character at work in a society. And if He's in you, if He's dwelling in you, if you walk day by day with Jesus, 
more and more and more you are going to love as he did without a list of a thousand rules telling you how to do it. So finally, don't be afraid of this world and its uncleanness. Do not ask me when we're going to start our avoidance ministry. That was a joke. It's not really happening. I'm calling you to do the exact opposite. Go get dirty in this world. Offer Christ to people to clean their hearts and their consciences. Yes, you're probably going to get hurt. You're going to offer to take in a baby that the parents can't care for anymore. And when you finally settle on raising him as your own, they're going to rip him away from you. You're going to give your life to serving sick people in a building full of sick people, and you're probably going to get sick more often because of it. You might look stupid trying to talk to a Somalian neighbor or a Spanish-speaking immigrant because you don't know their language or understand their culture. But quite the opposite of becoming defiled, you're fulfilling the law. And the God in heaven is smiling down on you, his perfectly spotless child in Christ. Let's pray. God, right now, whatever is in our hearts, whatever is in our minds that makes us think, I'm not good enough. Whatever impulse there is to say, I need to do better, I need to do better. Whatever fear we have of saying, but what about this law or that law? Help us cast it all before you and say, clean me. Write your law on my heart. Give me your spirit that I may live the law of freedom, the law of love towards others, delighting in you, trusting in you the whole time. God, don't let us hole ourselves up trying to avoid the defilement of the world. But send us out with a clean conscience, clean hands, pure heart, clear conscience to love as Jesus loved us, undefiled because of his pure blood. Amen.